Spider-Man was to examine his genesis and overall cohesiveness. Certainly creators Stanley and Steve Ditko didn't rest in any laurels in this next batch of comics. Along with returning villains and their first try at an extended arc, Lee and Ditko continued to mine the character and his environs for drama, as well as introducing newer and even stranger adversaries for Spider-Man to combat. In the five issues we'll be looking at in this episode, we have the first appearances of Electro and Mysterio, and a return bout with Dr. Octopus. Yet another simply stunning selection of comic books. With the growing pains out of the way, Lee and Ditko cut loose. The greatness begins on the cover of Amazing Spider-Man issue 9, the most original superhero of all time runs the cover copy. In this great issue you will meet Electro, a man is so powerful that Spider-Man's strength is useless against him, a book-length comic colossal proving again that this is indeed the Marvel Age of comics. This hyperbole is, for once, deserved. A strangely garbed man in yellow and green stands holding a money bag in his hand. He does nothing but stand there, a tad surprised, as Spider-Man simply touches him and falls, electricity surrounding his body. The man has electricity jaggles off of his mask and gloves, and in the secondary panel strides away as Spider-Man lies on the floor, smoke rising from the frame. A scene you will never forget, the defeat of Spider-Man. Ignoring that Spider-Man has been defeated a good number of times so far in this series, this is a stunning cover. Electro is a proper comic book villain in that he looks a tad comical, but manages to take Spider-Man out without lifting a finger, and this adds to the overall drama of the piece. Also adding to the sheer awesomeness of this cover is the colouring. Spider-Man is in his traditional red and dark blue, which is offset by the yellow lightning image around him. Electro's green and yellow suit is also wonderfully contrasted against the dark blue dusky sky and the grey of the rooftops and surrounding buildings. One of Ditko's best so far. It also has that delightful comics trope that the bag has a little dollar sign on it, which we will also see later on as well. Were they real? Or was that just something that comic book characters carried around with them? The Man Called Electro opens with a splash page that, in keeping with the times, is a teaser poster for the story to follow. Peter Parker stands in the centre of the page, half Spider-Man, his senses on edge, his face concerned. On both sides, the images are different. Whilst J. Jonah Jameson appears on both sides, on the Peter side, he's quite impassive, whereas on the Spider-Man side, he points and yells. On the Peter side, Betty Brant is smiling and friendly. On the Spider-Man side, she turns her back. To the top left, Aunt May lies ill in bed and the kids from school chide and mock. On the Spider-Man side, the public wonder what to make of Spider-Man as gunmen open fire. Interestingly, one of the hoods looks a lot like the big man, a villain for the future. Atop, Electro casts bolts about the page. In addition to being a great piece of art in its own right, this is a neat summation of the Spider-Man strip. Peter finds himself torn between two worlds, trapped by them. His private and public life are at constant war with each other, and the figure of Electro above straddles both worlds, demonstrating what shaky foundations Peter has built his life upon. After some traditional hyperbole from Stan Lee, the story opens with Spider-Man rushing home. He has an unusual sack at his hip and seems quite distracted, so much so he all but ignores a shootout between cops and criminals. 
In a lovely touch, the criminals toss away their arms, thinking Spider-Man will interfere, and are left aghast when he simply swings past, ignoring them. Some stunning panel work here from Ditko as he depicts Spider-Man as a fluid, constantly in motion figure, but it's the backgrounds and figure work where Ditko excels. More than any other Marvel strip, Spider-Man was the world outside your window, and this is what Ditko draws. The faces of the criminals and the bystanders are gorgeous in the normality. These aren't handsome, pretty people. These are real faces. They're craggy and jowly, and some have fat noses or thin faces, and the cars and the buildings are real cars and real buildings. Spider-Man exists in a real place, a place some of us lived in and others could only dream of visiting, but a recognisable environment. As he arrives home, we realise his rush was to provide desperately needed medicine for Aunt May, who is severely ill in bed. This was the first time we'd seen May as being a frail, bedridden figure, and it would become a turning point in the series' development. Up till now, Pete had money issues and had turned to aiding his ill aunt in being the main provider for the household, but this added an extra level to his problems. Peter not only needed money for the basics of life, food, clothes, rent, etc., but he also needed to buy presumably expensive medicine for his aunt. This extra level of drama that was grafted onto Peter, something else he had to deal with, as well as eliminating the question of why Aunt May didn't get a job. If she's physically incapable of doing so, this piles more problems onto Peter's plate, which gives us more drama to mine. A nice touch visually in this scene is that when Peter dresses to see May, he simply puts his coat on over his costume rather than doing a full costume change. Not only does this convey the rush that he's in, but it also gives us a wonderfully moody panel of Peter's sat coat open, revealing the Spider-Man costume underneath. In the dark, streetlights dancing through the blinds. Ditko excelled at shadows and lighting, and we're starting to see that start to come more to the fore as he grafts more crime noir elements into the strip. Across town, the mysterious figure we saw on the cover, the Electro of the title, robs a money truck. Electro's always been a favourite villain of mine, as his power is just so simple and yet so deadly. Just imagine for a second someone who could throw lightning bolts at you from his hands. That's pretty scary stuff. There's also a stunning level of economy here in the storytelling. Electro already has his powers, his costume, and the name from his first appearance. He seems confident and capable, and even has two giant electricity pylons in a den of some kind for recharging. Electro is a villain that for some reason certain writers seem to think of as a joke. Nothing could be further from the truth. Electro can be portrayed as a real badass, scurry and intimidating, with a very deadly power set. His costume looks goofy, sure, but hey, this is a comic book. There are any number of people with outfits sillier than Electro, and B, imagine looking at this guy, thinking he's a bit of a nut job, and then realising what he can do. Who's laughing then? Peter's life gets worse the next day, when he's told Aunt May will have to be hospitalised, and he realises he needs money and quick. The school day proceeds as you would expect, Peter choosing to internalise his problems, and some have said this shows Peter brought a lot of the bullying on himself. Firstly, nobody asks to be bullied. And whilst I admit that there are kids who don't help themselves in certain situations, this idea is spurious for a number of reasons. One, Peter has no reason to confide in any of his classmates. Sure, Liz Allen has been thawing a bit of late, but for the most part these kids have been nothing but cruel to Peter for his entire high school career. Why would he trust any of these people with his problems? The second reason for Peter to internalise this is this is how he's been brought up. He has no siblings or close friends, he doesn't have anyone to confide in. 
I think this is another important facet of his character, something completely lost in Ultimate Spider-Man, where Peter has a 14-year-old Murray Jane to confide in. Giving Peter a young, attractive girlfriend and confidant completely misses the point of the character, and was one of the many reasons I couldn't get behind that series, as many others seem to. It's a nice touch that Flash tries to reach out to Peter. Flash knows that Peter clobbered him last issue, even if the rest of the school cohort think that Peter knocking Flash to the floor was a fluke, and this adds depth to Flash's character without contradicting his essential personality. Again, very subtle character work from Lee and Ditko here, especially when the other kids again read this as Peter snubbing Flash, simply because Peter is too wrapped up in himself to notice what's going on. At the hospital, Betty Brandt has visited, implying a friendship between May and Betty that has been growing off-panel, and that Peter and Betty are closer than we thought. This is perhaps one element of the story that could have done with further explanation, but it does give us something I think stories of this nature have been missing recently. As readers, we don't have to see everything in the characters' lives. In addition to giving the writers wiggle room, it implies that the lives of the characters continue to be lived, even when we're not watching them, and I like that. We see snapshots of their lives, not everything. Peter then switches to Spider-Man to make some money, but rain stops play. This gives us a simply wonderful and oft-homaged panel of Spider-Man walking along the edge of a rooftop in the rain. It's one of many defining Ditko images of Spider-Man, and certainly one that comes to mind whenever I think of Ditko drawing the character. Elsewhere, Electra robs a bank that J. Jonah Jameson happens to be at. Electro recognises Jameson, and this makes Jonah believe that Electro knows him. Electro then escapes by climbing the walls using his electricity. As he disappears, Spider-Man swings by. Ignoring the whole climbing walls by using electricity to adhere to Iron Girders thing, which, I'm sorry, I think is a bit dumb even for comics, this is the first time Jonah does the whole, insert name here, is Spider-Man bit. Yet in this story it works quite well. Yes, Jonah is a bit dumb, thinking Electro must be somebody who knows him simply because he's recognised, as this seems to ignore that Jonah has been on TV quite a lot. He's a moderately famous person in the New York area. But when Jonah sees Electro climb a wall and then Spider-Man swings past, well, one can understand how Jonah can take a step to the left where the conclusions lie. Granted, publishing it as fact in his newspaper seems a tad premature, but he wants the headlines, and he wants them quickly. It's one of the few times that Jonah did this trick that actually feels organic to the story. More proof of Peter internalising all his problems comes here, and we understand why, much later on in the series, he would start getting stomach ulcers. Betty thinks that Peter is a calm individual on the surface, but a volcano underneath. And when approaching Jonah for an advance, Peter never corrects him, where Jonah assumes he just wants the money for frivolous teenage things. Maybe had Peter levelled with Jonah, the money would have been forthcoming. Granted... In a few issues' time, Peter will actually go and ask for another advance, and at that point will tell Jonah that he needs it for his aunt's medication, and Jonah is still not for moving or giving him any more money. So maybe Jonah's just a badass, and at this particular case, Peter knew that even mentioning it wouldn't get him anywhere. Still, Betty knew about May, and she doesn't say anything either, so, you know. Peter decides to forego taking pictures of Electro, and decides simply to catch him for the reward money. There's another of Ditko's wonderful montage scenes of Spider-Man scouring the city looking for Electro. But then there's some horribly muddled art and dialogue, unusual for Lee and Ditko at this time. Spider-Man comes across Electro breaking into an apartment through a rooftop access. The art makes it look like Electro has cracked a safe that was on the rooftop. 
Which begs the question, why would anyone keep a safe on a rooftop? Electro then turns and sees Spider-Man. Stan adds dialogue that seems to imply Electro broke into an apartment, cracked the safe, and then left again, which makes a little bit more sense, but this isn't what the art shows, and is an attempt by Stan to clear up a potentially confusing sequence of events. But then Stan has Electro say he saw Spider-Man in a mirror on a rooftop. The art clearly shows Electro turn and simply spot Spider-Man as he prepares to attack him. It wasn't unusual for Lee and his artists to not be on the same page, as it were, but this is a weird bit. It's unclear from the art exactly what Ditko was going for, and Stan tries to clear it up, but in doing so, he makes it even more muddled. An unusual, for this time period, miscommunication between the two. Spider-Man tackles Electro and, predictably, loses. What's not predictable is the aftermath. Electro bemoans the apparent death of Spider-Man, which shows us that Electro is no killer, painting him in this first appearance as a simple robber. However, the big shock here is Peter fakes photos to imply that Electro and Spider-Man are one and the same. Now this, this was a great bit. Peter hates doing this, although he had no problem faking Sandman pictures back in issue 4, but desperate times call for desperate measures. This is also a very different scenario. In issue 4, he faked an event that had actually happened, whereas here, he desperately needs money to pay for Aunt May's operation and hospital bills. What he's doing is wrong, and he knows it, but he needs the money. It's a fascinating dilemma to put the superhero into, and another way Spider-Man managed to wring a lot of human drama out of standard superhero fiction. We then get a little flashback in the middle of the issue explaining Electro's origin. He was a lineman called Max Dillon who survived a freak accident. Nothing too original, but sometimes simplicity is best. And then he proceeded to do what Peter Parker didn't. He turned to crime. However, he makes a really stupid mistake at this point in the story, electing to free a bunch of cons from the pen in order to have a gang. The prison riot hits the news, but Peter can't go, as this is the time of Aunt May's operation. It says a lot about Lee and Ditko as a combo that are able to wring every last ounce of tension out of May's operation in a Spider-Man crime story. And this ends up being the crux of the story. Everything Peter does in this issue, he does for family. His loyalty to his family outweighs everything else. His studies, his ethics, everything. It's a touching and heartfelt subtext to the story, beautifully written by Lee in the tender scenes between Peter and May, and gorgeously realised by Ditko as Peter and Betty sit in the shadow of the falling sun, the shadow crossing their figures as the clock ticks inexorably as they wait for news on if May's operation has been a success. Lee never mentions what the operation is, but that doesn't really matter. The aftermath has May recovering, and Betty, in a lovely moment of foreshadowing, reveals she likes Peter a lot, but cannot bear the thought that he puts himself in danger for photos, as she knows he surely must with the prison break on the news. Peter says the dangerous photos sell the best, and after 15 pages of supreme melodrama and characterisation, it's action all the way as Spider-Man takes to the prison to quell the riot and bring in Elektra. The fight in the prison is another magnificently choreographed Ditko fight scene, frenetic and action-packed. Peter again uses his brains, adopting rubber gloves and boots to fight Electra, and ultimately takes him out with a water hose, a brilliantly obvious conclusion that still manages to have the reader cheering in their seats. Upon unmasking Electro, Spider-Man is agog that he hasn't got a single clue who this guy is, a recurring theme in Dicto's stories, and he returns Electro to the police, revealing that he and Electro are not one and the same after all, much to Jonah's chagrin. 
The ending is beautiful. Jonah is screaming bloody murder at being duped when Peter shows up with photos of Electro being caught. Another great scene, this dances between comedy and drama, as Peter is relieved to give these photos to Jonah to alleviate his conscience, but Jonah is positively apoplexic, getting these pictures at such rock-bottom prices. Peter gouged Jonah last time for the money to pay for Aunt May, but here he lets Jonah's greed slide by, happy to have made amends. The last page is the kicker, though. Peter and Betty have a proper heart-to-heart where they split on bad terms as Peter reminds Betty of why she had to quit school because of some past danger in her life, something she doesn't go into here. Betty then meets with Peter after he sees May and they walk away under a gorgeous panel of New York at night, the pair of them underneath a shining streetlight. An interesting piece of trivia about this story. It was the first issue of Spider-Man Comics Weekly, Marvel UK's second major release following the success of The Mighty World of Marvel. It's a good choice as a lead-off, as it's an absolutely magnificent issue, and a strong candidate for the best so far. Everything works in this story. The villain, the characterisation, the drama, and the action. I like it a great deal that there was no thematic link between Electro and the Peter Parker material. He was the bad guy, and all that was going on whilst Peter had all this other stuff happening in his life. The juxtaposition between Peter and Spider-Man was core to the strip before writers started forgetting that that's what was important. And it works very well here. There's some great steps forward in Peter and Betty's relationship, arguably the most mature of Lee's handling of romance in these early comics, and the action, when it happens, is up to Ditko's usual high standards. Issue 9 of The Amazing Spider-Man is therefore considered a belter, an all-time classic, introducing a new foe and doing it very well. If issue 9 had one of the best cores of the series, issue 10 has one of the most boring. Against a sickly pale green background, a poorly drawn Spider-Man takes up the main foreground, as a new set of villains stand in the background, looking like they are some distance away. Either that, or they are really, really tiny. These guys are apparently the Enforcers. One has a scream-type mask, one is a big lug with a flat head, one has a lasso, and one is even smaller than everyone else. He must be the Davy Jones of the group. This cover gives them no menace or threat. They look like a group of male strippers. Only the enforcers are Ditko drawing. Spider-Man is by Jack Kirby. Now, I think Kirby is a genius and one of the main architects of the Marvel U. However, his interpretation of Spider-Man is awful. Compare the Kirby version to Ditko. Kirby's version is stiff and flat, with no muscle definition, no fluidity of movement. Ditko's Spider-Man exuded youthful exuberance and energy. Kirby's feels like it needs a lie down. Why this was chosen as the cover remains a mystery, as there was a full cover drawn by Steve Ditko that is far superior. It's a far more action-packed cover, with Spider-Man caught in between all the Enforcers and then beating on him. He's lassoed, punched and kicked to the ground, as the menacing figure of the big man lurks in the foreground with a gun in his hand. It's far more colourful, dynamic and exciting than the image used for the published cover, and whoever rejected this in favour of the other was really asleep at the wheel. Simply entitled The Enforcers, this issue implements a significant change in the tone and direction of the series and solidifies the Spider-Man formula from this point forth. As of this issue, Lee and Ditko managed to crystallise exactly what Spider-Man is as both a character and a strip and with this final piece of the puzzle in place, from this point forward it's full steam ahead for one of the greatest single runs of comics by two creators ever. 
This final element is the addition of crime noir into the mix, giving Spider-Man a far different tone to the other Marvel comics of the period, and set it apart. Who was truly responsible for this is unclear, but in the documentary In Search of Steve Ditko, Stanley admits that, by the midpoint of their relationship, his story ideas for Ditko consisted of a one-sentence description. Lee is quoted as saying, After a while, I wouldn't even say that much to Steve. He would just go and do whatever story he wanted. I don't think we're quite at that stage yet, but it's clear from the tone of the series that the freer hand Ditko was given, the more crime fiction-like the strip became. The Splash is another reworked cover, but in this case to a cover the reader initially never saw. Spider-Man, woozy and on his knees, is surrounded by these enforcers and the mysterious Big Man. With this issue, the Marvel Age of Comics reaches a new plateau of greatness, runs Stan's hyperbolic cover. I have to say, Stan's use of the word plateau here confused me. When you reach a plateau, doesn't that mean you've levelled off? And then, from then onwards, it's either all downhill or no progress is made. I'm sure he can't have meant to say that, as of this issue, Marvel's going to be going downhill all the way. But what do I know? I'm not editing these books. How can one lone crime fighter, though possessing the power of countless spiders, hope to defeat the Enforcers? It's not one of Stan's better taglines. The story opens with a dual heist orchestrated by the newest threat to New York's populace, the Big Man. Dressed in a fedora, trench coat and cravat, the big man has declared himself ruler of the crime syndicate and, to prove his worth, has robbed a bank in broad daylight using a helicopter and a robber who doesn't mind walking onto flagpoles. Having Spider-Man fail to stop them is a huge boost to his ego and he uses this and his band of thugs, the Enforcers, to push his will on the other gang leaders. Sadly, the kingpin is nowhere to be seen, but these men are whipped into shape by Fancy Dan, small of stature but fleet of foot and a master of judo, the ox, who's a big hulking mound of muscle, and Montana, a master of the lasso. As usual for Ditko, the opening is a visual tour de force. Spider-Man being fooled by the thug being hoisted into the sky by the helicopter overhead is a tad silly, unless the helicopter has whisper mode like Blue Thunder, but Ditko's sequential storytelling is superlative. Spidey whips around a flagpole and hurls himself at the apex of his spin high into the sky, reaching dizzying heights unbelievably quickly, and the reader is right there with him. Rarely have artists since Ditko managed to equal the master in depicting the dizzying acrobatic skills of Spider-Man, as well as his speed and movement. There's also some trademark Ditko humour in the ox, who defeats an entire phalanx of goons whilst calmly eating an apple. Having the big man simply stroll into a syndicate meeting and announce he's taking over implies the guy has cojones the size of watermelons, and it's a satisfying introduction to the story. Next, we carry over from the last issue, as we recap the reader on Aunt May's illness and heighten the drama. May now needs a blood transfusion, and as her only relative, only Peter can provide it. An astonishing piece of foreshadowing for an upcoming story. Peter is worried that his blood will somehow affect his aunt, as he doesn't really know what the spider bite did to him. Dramatically, this beat is very satisfying, especially as we know the events here will pay off in the future, adding weight to Peter's concern. However, why would Peter think his powers come from his blood? As a scientist, Peter would know that whilst the spider bite probably did do something to his bloodstream, by and large the alterations would be to his DNA rather than just his bloods. 
This could simply be Stan simply making an error, as Peter actually points out in his thoughts that the blood tests come back with no issues, implying that whatever the spider bite did to Peter, it didn't make his blood noticeably different to casual scientific testing. It also negates that line from the TV show He's Got Radioactive Blood. It's also a nice touch that Flash and Liz have dropped by to see how May is, which again implies life continuing to happen to these characters in between issues, even if it does add a touch of false drama to the scene, with Flash needling Peter about being unsure about donating his blood. The other issue here, of course, is that Peter isn't a blood relative of May. This isn't really a problem, as long as they have the same blood type, and to be honest, these are all just niggles and nitpicks. As I've said before, logic can occasionally be sacrificed for drama, as it's being here. We also need to take a moment here to look at Peter's sartorial style. We've already established that Peter has a natty line in armless tank tops, normally yellow over a white shirt and red tie combo, under his traditional blue suit. Here, he's swapped out the yellow tank top for a green and black striped number that clashes horribly with his red tie. Peter's dress sense won't improve much at all until he ends up going to college, where finally he reads GQ magazine. Anyway, with May on the mend, she takes a trip to Florida to relax in the sun with her next-door neighbours, the Abbots. May is friends with a good number of her neighbours, apparently, as in the future it will be Anna Watson who May hangs out with. The events of this issue must take place over a considerable amount of time, rather than just the nine panels shown here. As the next panel, a wonderfully 40s-style gangster montage, the creators establish that the big man has been running a crime wave so big, it's bringing New York City to its knees. The story is so big, J. Jonah Jameson himself is reporting on it, giving us a magnificent Ditko panel of Jameson lighting a cigar as the police haul away another suspect. Jameson, of course, blames Spider-Man for all this, because he's Jameson. Whilst Ditko excelled at the Spider-Man action, it's in these little moments that we see his true genius. I've already banged on about his realistic skyscrapers, people and buildings, but it's the small beats that ground the fantasy. This panel is one such beat. There's nothing particularly spectacular about a man lighting a cigar, but the shading and shadowing of the scene makes it a standout panel. Real people in a real environment doing real things which really sell the fantasy of what we're reading. This continues into the Bugle offices where Jameson asks a reporter, Fred Foswell, to write a series of articles that point to the big man being Spider-Man. Foswell, quite logically, points out Jonah lost a lot of credibility claiming Spider-Man was Electro last month, but Jameson snaps at Foswell. Again, a couple of neat moments here. Foswell is the first Daily Bugle reporter we've seen, other than Jameson, so he instantly sets the spider sense tingling. Secondly, the last issue is here referred to as the Wrath of Electra, rather than the more accurate, the man-called Electra. And the footnote said that this story is said to have taken place last month, with the Spider-Man strip here clearly happening in something approaching real time. This would work well for this story, which, as I've mentioned, needs to have taken place over some considerable time period, but it will cause problems going forth. Betty leaves the office for the day, and outside the building is accosted by the enforcers. Apparently Betty has borrowed money from a loan shark, and the big man has sent them to collect on the interest. This is not the first time there have been indicators that Betty is in some way involved in shady business, and this will pay off in the next issue. Peter also shows that being Spider-Man has affected his personality, perhaps more than we thought. When he arrives to meet Betty, the enforcers prepare to rough Peter up a little as a lesson to Betty. But Peter is visibly angry and prepared to fight back. This isn't mild, meek Peter Parker anymore, and this changing in manifests itself to others as increased confidence. 
It's an important beat, as it establishes that neither Peter nor Spider-Man is the real person. Both are one. Being Spider-Man has been a boon to Peter in terms of his personal growth, even though he may not see it or even recognise it. I would like to think that this was done on purpose by Ditko, as we rarely see Wallflower Peter again in his run. The Enforcers are also really cool here. Again, another bad guy collective that are treated as a joke by weaker writers. The Enforcers in this story are portrayed as leg breakers and thugs, with people genuinely afraid of them, and their toying with Peter makes us, the reader, want him to kick some Enforcer arse. Speaking of terrifying, Peter switches to Spider-Man and then picks up the creep who pointed Betty out to the Enforcers. Finding the man more afraid of them than him, Spider-Man pulls a great, almost Batman-esque stunt, weaving a large spider out of his webbing and then threatening to feed the thug to it, should he not be forthcoming with the location of the Enforcers. After a short but visually stunning fight scene, where we are treated to Spider-Man fighting in the dark again, but this time depicted in blue and black instead of red and black, Spidey is running on a low light after the blood transfusion, and as such, has to bail out. He witnesses J.E. Jonah Jameson in the area and, in a reversal of last issue, erroneously deduces that Jonah must be the big man. Unlike Jonah, though, he tries to verify his facts with Betty, but Betty has left town. Ditko's art here is fully embracing the noirish leanings of the plots, as he has a number of panels take place at dusk, and he uses this to use shading and shadow to manipulate the mood. Witness the gorgeous panel where Betty stands, shoulders hunched, her hand on the phone, her head down, her decision made. Ditko bathes her in dark shadows to indicate her mood. Likewise, he does the same later with Spider-Man. Without May out of town, Peter lounges around the house in his Spider-Man outfit. Again, the setting sun ensures the room is covered in the yellow, sickly glow of the streetlights, as Peter sits alone as darkness falls. As he makes his decision, he stands up, and Ditko has half the panel in darkness and half in light, the side he stands Peter in. The Spider-Man costume looks great in the darkness, and Peter's unmasked face, half light, half dark, signifying both Peter's resolve and the shadowy world he now finds himself inhabiting. Peter decides that if he can't find the big man himself, he'll bring the big man to him, boasting that he has figured out his ID and is about to grasp the big man up to the police. Flash, in a really nice touch, tells Peter to shut the hell up before he gets in real trouble. Needless to say, Peter's boasting has the desired effect, and the enforcers pick him up and bundle him into a car, revealing that the big man is aware of Peter. Peter is therefore convinced, although in an interesting character moment saddened, that the big man must be Jonah Jameson. It's interesting to follow Peter's thought processes about how he thinks Jonah is simply jealous of anyone who is more glamorous than he, which gives us at least a small amount of motivation, although more will be forthcoming, for why Jonah doesn't like Spider-Man. There's a production note worth pointing out here in that the lettering changes after page 12 and remains in this slightly bigger font for the rest of the issue. I've no idea why this would be, as letterers were not credited at this point in Spider-Man history. More shady goings-on with the big man, who also stands in a room with only one light illuminating him. Ditko's use of shadow and shading this issue is simply sublime. There is a minor goof in this scene, though, in that we cut to an establishing shot of Police HQ, which gives us one of the best tropes of the Silver Age, the talking building, in which we learn that Spider-Man has tipped the police off about something happening tonight. But this is before Peter has been snatched by the enforcers. It sets up the ending, but perhaps placing this panel in between Peter being locked up and changing to Spider-Man and the big fight scene would have made more sense. 
Spider-Man is overwhelmed by the sheer number of mobsters in attendance at the big man's meeting and is painfully aware that in his still weakened state they may be too much for him to handle. From this springboard it's time for the climactic battle which for some reason is in a machine shop. It's possible the big man was running a chop shop for cars, but whatever the reason, this is a visual playground Ditko hasn't played in before, and trapping Spider-Man indoors makes for a different kind of fight. Coming up with visually interesting yet different locations for Spider-Man to fight in is probably one of the challenges of the strip, and Ditko does a good job of showing Spider-Man using his environment to the best advantage. There are some good moments, and the sequential storytelling and choreography are fine, but it's not one of the better Ditko fight scenes, although the rather girish yellow colouring doesn't help. Spider-Man manages to signal the police in a really rather silly move, where he attaches his webbing to his spider signal, and then hurls it rather haphazardly into the night. From this rather sketchy plan, the police manage to deduce exactly what Spider-Man is telling them, and exactly where to go. The big man flees, and Spider-Man fails to stop him, but convinced he knows who he is anyway, Spider-Man heads to the Daily Bugle. However, as he arrives there, the police have also arrived to arrest... Foswell. This has to be one of the worst reveals in any mystery ever written, in that there was really only one suspect... We've never seen any other employees at the Bugle apart from Jameson and Betty. And whilst revealing the big man was actually Betty Brandt may have been an interesting twist, it wasn't something that was ever really on the cards. Also, other than Foswell being in the issue, there were no other clues other than the big man knew Peter. This isn't really Ditko's finest hour as a plotter, despite being an enjoyable issue in its own right. The issue closes in downbeat fashion. J. Jonah Jameson has to acknowledge that his hatred of Spider-Man is nothing more than petty jealousy, no matter how he might like to hide it behind the veil of crusading journalist. Peter still has no contact from Betty, and Betty herself is alone in a room in Pennsylvania, pondering her fate. The final panel is Spider-Man's mask over the city, a great visual that was used to end the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon every episode. This is a fur to middling issue, although of course the ranking system would be higher for this run of comics than most others. It's hugely entertaining, but the mystery of the big man doesn't really work when there's only one suspect. Still, there is some great foreshadowing regarding Betty Brandt, and this is where the strip has really started to soar. All of the characters are characters, with believable motivations and character traits. There are even twists in what we think we know. Jonah isn't always a blowhard. Flash Thompson isn't always a jerk. Betty has a dark secret. And these subsidiary characters draw us into Spider-Man's world and make it a more believable place. Up next, an issue I have a problem being in any way impartial about. Arguably one of my favourite issues of the Lee Ditko run, number 11, Turning Point, features the return of Dr Octopus and has a striking cover. In what looks like the hold of a boat, Dr Octopus pins Spider-Man down and moves in for the kill. Excellent in that Spider-Man is up against the wall, literally, and it looks like it could be the end for our hero. Dr Octopus always looks his best when dressed in regular clothes, although I do have a soft spot for the Savile Row suits Eric Larson put him in. And here he looks like a beatnik poet in his nifty green turtleneck and purple slacks. He's probably due on stage after this for open mic night. The splash is equally excellent. A sobbing Betty Brandt pounds on Spider-Man's chest, yelling that she will hate you until the day I die. Spider-Man's body language conveys complete bewilderment, and the large silhouette of Dr. Octopus dominates the background. Lee fills both the cover and the splash with copy, mostly hyperbole, but all of it works to set up the story and make the reader keen to dive in. 
Opening with Peter moping in his room, we pick up some of the threads of last issue, with him thinking about Betty. For the past few issues, there has been set up that Betty is in over her head in some way, but Peter has no clue about where she's gone. The Expositional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, reveals Otto Octavius is scheduled for release from prison, and Spider-Man heads over there to prevent this from happening. As with most Spider-Man stories of this vintage, the opening works as it builds on the past, thanks to a brilliant one-panel flashback to issue 3, and has Spider-Man attempt to block someone's release from jail, which, as the Warden points out, isn't how democracy works. I have to say I always assumed Otto's early release was a wily lawyer wrangling, as he could easily argue the strain and stress of the accident affected Otto's mind, which it clearly did, but this isn't mentioned in the story. Peter heads home, and in something that is becoming a significant part of the Ditko run, he adds another addition to his weapons arsenal by creating the Spider Tracer. Here, he needs a little device to track the Tracer, but Spider-Man adding extra gadgets was something that screeched to a halt once Ditko left. Again, Ditko gives us a lovely cross-section of the Spider Tracer, explaining how it works. Spider-Man returns to prison the next day to plant the tracer on the car that Dr. Octopus is leaving in, only to see that the person picking Ock up is Betty Brandt. This was a great reveal, and played magnificently into the subplot regarding Betty that's been building over the past few issues. It's a tad convenient that Betty drops a map as she drives away, but hey, there are worse ways for Spider-Man to follow her trail. In Philly, we discover that Betty's brother Bennett Brandt is a lawyer with a gambling problem. As such, he is in hock to Blackie Gaxton, a notorious mobster who is blackmailing Bennett to help him out. To that end, he has arranged for Dr. Octopus to break him out of jail, and Betty is picking Ock up from New York for the job. More than ever, Spider-Man is now a crime noir strip. Gambling problems, shyster lawyers, jailbreaks, blackmail, events being more complicated than they seem, all of these elements are classics of the crime genre, and dragging Betty into this gives us somebody to care for as the story develops. Also interesting are the themes left unexplored. Bennett clearly has an addiction to gambling, presumably a lifelong problem, that has ultimately led him to this situation, and we get to see the damage this has done not only to his life, but to the life of his family as well. What a subtle way of weaving a morality fable into the story for the kids to learn without banging them over the head with it. There's no and now you know moment here. Just really great writing and great characterization. There are also a couple of things to discuss about Betty and her subplot. Over the past few issues, there have been hints dropped that Peter reminds Betty of someone she knows, someone who likes danger a little more than perhaps he should. Here we learn that this person is her brother, Bennett, who is apparently a gambler in hock to Blackie Gaxton. Last issue, we saw that Betty owed money to the big man for a loan that she took out. Here, though, it's her brother that's in deep due to gambling debts. Given that we never hear of Betty's money loan issues again, it's logical to assume that the debts she was paying off were Bennett's debts rather than her own, and that the money owed to the big man was actually Blackie Gaxton's debt that the big man was taking payment for whilst Gaxton was in jail. To be fair, this is a bit of a stretch. Gaxton is a mobster in Philadelphia rather than New York, which is about 100 miles away. It's reasonable to assume that Brandt studied law in New York and left a trail of debt there, or Gaxton was originally a New York gangster who fled to Philly. I don't know how viable any of this, but it seems that either Lee or Ditko forgot to make the link between the two subplots. This is bore out if we look back at the panels where Betty leaves last issue. 
It would have been a simple matter to alter the dialogue to establish that Betty was not leaving of her own accord, that the enforcer's problem had become a bigger one, and she was off to Philadelphia to help out her brother. Sadly, the scripting in the last issue simply has Betty run away from her problems, rather than the more noble traitor have her be helping a family member. A missed opportunity, and I guess we'll never know if Ditko always intended this to be a linked plot, or if he was making it up as he went along. Fortunately, this is the weekend, and so Peter tells Aunt May he's going to Philadelphia for a trip to see the historical sites. Sadly, this is also a missed opportunity. Last issue, May went away to recuperate from her operation, and this could have been used to excuse her absence here, removing the need for Peter to have to make any excuse, especially as we've already seen him lounging around the house in his Spider-Man costume. I do have to concede that whilst there are moments that do look like some forward planning was put into this strip, moments like this kind of let the side down a bit. Peter heads to Philly, and then lets his spider tracking device do all the hard work, swinging around town trying to locate its signal. He does so, and by pure dumb luck, bumps into Betty. Despite the convenience of this, it's quite a touching reunion, lit purely by streetlight, and Peter resolves to tell Betty that he's Spider-Man as soon as they are back in New York City. This rash decision may be why Peter almost blows the secret ID bit here by telling Betty that Spider-Man is in town to keep tabs on Dr. Octopus. Speaking of Dr. Octopus, after slapping Bennett around for a few laughs, he gets on with his job, springing Gaxton from prison. Ditko's very clever use of Ock's arms to accomplish this are impressive, but Ock himself seems to have undergone something of a personality transplant since issue 3. This Dr. Octopus is now a criminal, pure and simple. He's springing Gaxton for the money and is more a pure gangster than in his last issue. Despite his vociferous claims that he's not a common criminal, this is exactly what he is. As established in his last appearance, his mind was affected by the explosion. This could simply be a subconscious manifestation coming forth. Maybe Octavius always wanted to be a gangster. He's still quite refined and charming when he wants to be. Spider-Man heads to the courthouse to prevent Oc from springing Jackson, but he's too late and in true Spider-Man fashion is blamed for the breakout. He pursues the duo to a tugboat, another chance for Ditko to take Spider-Man out of his element for a fight scene, but he also has Spider-Man twist his ankle on some ropes when he lands on the boat. These are all great ways of putting Spider-Man on the back foot. Not only have Lee and Ditko taken a character who's better suited to skyscrapers and acrobatics and placed him in an environment where he's forced to fight close quarters, but they've also given him the liability of not being able to perform those acrobatics by having him be unable to put any weight on his left foot talk about stacking the deck against the hero. The fight scene kicks off here on page 12 and continues for most of the rest of the book. Interestingly, the structure of this story is different to other Spider-Man stories of this vintage, with no setup in high school, no introductory battle that Spider-Man loses, and no moment where Spider-Man uses his brains to get out of a scrape. Our hero is over his head here, what with Doc Ock out for revenge and plenty of armed thugs out to plug him, and it's all he can do just to stay alive and one step ahead. Ditko manages to get some great moments out of the first part of the fight, with Spidey doing everything he can to take out as many as he can without actually standing on his sore ankle. However, his cockiness overcomes him, and his grandstanding when tackling Gaxton sees a stray bullet hit Bennett Brandt, killing him as he tries to protect his sister. Betty blames Spider-Man in a great scene, where, as Gaxton and Ock flee, she pounds on his chest, crying with impotent rage. It's a great beat. This isn't really Spider-Man's fault, not in the way Uncle Ben's death was, but Betty taking it out on him is a wonderfully human reaction. 
Spider-Man has to leave, unable to take Betty in his arms, and when he does, his anger is palpable. In one of the best scenes we've had so far, Spider-Man stalks Gaxton, waiting for his gun to run out of bullets. As he does so, he walks towards the man, fists clenched in anger, as gangsters climb all over him in an effort to bring him down. Spider-Man simply ignores them and, enraged, lifts Gaxon up with one hand and then punches him clear across the deck, sending all of the other thugs crashing to the floor with him. How Ditko and Lee manage to convey such raw, unbridled anger with a character whose face is entirely covered is a testament to their skills as storytellers. Spider-Man then goes after Dr. Octopus, Ditko using every inch of the tugboat for this scene. Spider-Man and Octavius fight each other on the deck, in the cabin, and in the hold, before events take them off the tug and into a smaller speedboat that has arrived to whisk Gaxton away. We should pause again here to recognise how well this plot is just building on itself. No event feels forced or ludicrous, rather each moment piles on the last in an organic and believable way. These are probably the highest stakes in a Spider-Man story yet, and it feels like it. This feels dangerous. Spider-Man again, in a show of his ingenuity, uses props and facilities available to him on the boat to try and defeat Ock, but Ock has the upper hand throughout this entire battle. Yes, Spider-Man is hurt, both physically and emotionally, but Ock is a relentless foe in this story, pounding on our hero and giving him no room to manoeuvre or breathe. This is Dr. Octopus at his very best, not the chubby loser of later stories, but an unwavering and implacable foe, every bit our hero's equal. Showing some brains, the thugs decide to take Oct's money and run, grabbing Betty as a hostage. Oct knocks them out, grabs the money himself, and legs it, leaping onto the waiting speedboat. Spider-Man follows him, and the two get into a knock-down, drag-out brawl on the smaller vessel's roof, culminating only when the boat strikes the docks. Spider-Man and Ock are thrown free, and the police arrive to arrest Gaxton and his cronies. What I liked about this ending was that, although we don't see Dr. Octopus again in this issue, we are never led to believe he's dead. Spider-Man quite rightly assumes that because he survived, Ock did as well. The conclusion is wonderfully melancholic. Peter goes to see Betty, who confides in him that she doesn't blame Spider-Man for Bennett's death. Not really. Bennett brought all of this on himself, but she still doesn't want to have any dealings with Spider-Man if she can help it. Ignoring that going back to work for a man who wants nothing but pictures of Spider-Man, this was a remarkably mature decision. Lee could have easily used this to drive more irony in Spider-Man's direction, that this woman loves Peter but can't stand Spider-Man, but instead he goes in another, more believable direction. Later on, without Ditko's steady hand in the plotting, he would take this well-worn and more melodramatic path with Gwen Stacy, but for now, this was a lovely ending. Closing out with another iconic Ditko panel of Peter walking the nighttime streets of New York, with the shadow of Spider-Man lurking above him, this was a remarkably mature and assured issue. I suspect it's one of my favourites as, along with the first appearance of the Vulture, it was one of the first Spider-Man stories I ever read, but that in no way takes away from how good this is. Eleven issues in, and The Amazing Spider-Man has gone from being good, to great, to the best comic available to 1964's reader base. Issue 12 promises even more greatness. The cover, simply one of Ditko's best ever, has Octopus holding Spider-Man by the arms and thighs as another one of his arms rips off the mask to reveal Peter Parker's face. Watching this spectacle, numerous police, Betty Brant and J. Jonah Jameson. Not a dream, 
Not an imaginary tale, runs the copy, Stanley taking a cute dig at his competition over the road at national periodical publications. You'll gasp in amazement when Peter is unmasked by Dr. Octopus. The cover also gives us the title of the issue, but we're too gobsmacked to notice. It's simply a brilliant cover. For the first time in the series history, we have a story that directly follows on from the previous one, even though it can't actually be called a two-part story. The splash is as great as the cover. The central spine of the image is a classic Ditko Spider-Man, with Peter stood in full costume, head hanging low, with his mask in his hand. He's surrounded by the menacing threat of Dr. Octopus, the floating heads of Flash, Liz, Aunt May and Betty, a spine-tingling assortment of beasts on the rampage, and it's topped off with the rather comical image of J. Jonah Jameson pounding away at his typewriter, waving a fist at a picture of Spider-Man he has upon his wall. Still, great work. The white background in particular sets off the images beautifully. The story opens with a newspaper headline proclaiming that Ock being loose is all Spider-Man's fault and Spidey heads over to the Bugle to give Jonah a piece of his mind. He's distracted by the arrival of Betty Brant who returns to the Bugle to ask for her job back. Jonah is happy to see her since no other secretaries can put up with him and Spider-Man changes to his Peter togs to go and see Betty. This first page is inadvertently symptomatic of the issue in that it lurches from moment to moment rather than progressing organically. Has Peter not been in touch with Betty since returning from Philly? Where did the last scene of the last issue take place then? Do Peter and Betty do all the courting from the offices of the Daily Bugle? This haphazard approach to the plotting carries over onto page two, where Ock is running rampant all over the nation, hoping Spider-Man will follow him and attack him again. Ock, frustrated Spider-Man hasn't followed him, vows to return to New York to locate Spidey. This was another development that made little sense. If Ock's motivation is to lure Spider-Man out, why the hell rob an armoured bank in Kansas? The art gives no indication that Ock is operating on a national level, that's all in the captions, so it's possible Lee added this wrinkle without thinking it through. More haphazard plotting. Peter is suddenly feeling ill, something that's set up rather clumsily in one panel. Given how good the setup and payoff has been in this strip so far, this was disappointing. We then spend three panels at high school, where the Daily Bugle has apparently published a front-page article on how dangerous spiders are. We then go back to the Bugle, where Dr. Octopus Crank calls Betty, but stupidly talks to himself when hanging up, so Betty recognises his voice. Ock's plan is sound, though. He reasons that Spider-Man risked everything for Betty last time, so putting her in jeopardy will bring Spidey out this time. He dutifully heads to the Daily Bugle to kidnap her, just as Peter arrives, and Ock tells both he and Jonah to print an edition of the paper that tells Spider-Man to meet him at Coney Island, now closed for the winter. This opening has been far too fast, with no one scene being given the time to breathe. There are some great ideas here, but the execution is unusually botched, with Peter's illness being introduced too quickly, the high school scene feeling tacked on, and Octopus's rampage feeling forced. Still, there is some funny here. When Oc grabs Jonah, he says, Don't just dangle there, Parker! Tell him who I am! In that superior way you would expect Jameson to act. Jameson orders Peter to take the photos of the conflict, which of course puts our hero in dire straits. How can he go as both Peter and Spider-Man? As with all Marvel newspapers, a special edition is hastily prepared and on the streets in minutes. Spider-Man confronts Jonah, pretending he knows nothing, and we'll move on and not talk about that ridiculous trope again. Jonah doesn't trust Peter and heads to Coney Island himself, neglecting to tell the police, and all the pieces are in place for the best confrontation since the series began. And then Lee and Ditko throws a great curveball. 
Instead of a ten-page fight scene, a weakened Spider-Man finds himself no match for Dr. Octopus and is roundly thrashed. Betty manages to escape and brings the police, and before them, Jonah and Betty, Dr. Octopus rips off Spider-Man's mask. This is brilliant stuff. Ditko opens the panels up, running the width of the page, and his impeccable storytelling ability is brought to the fore. He devotes only four panels to the page where Ock beats Spider-Man, and we get a lovely wide shot of Ock cradling Spider-Man's body in his extendable arms as the police, Betty and Jonah, walk in. As he moves to pull off the mask, the next panel shoots into a close-up of Peter's unconscious face and the startled actions of the observers. Yes, Ditko is sacrificing realism for drama here, as even the police are far too interested in what's occurring with Spider-Man than arresting Dr. Octopus. Neither of the cops pull a gun or make a move to arrest Doc, but when Ditko is so successful in ratcheting up the tension, we'll go along with it. Again, sacrificing logic for drama is perfectly acceptable when the drama is this compelling. The crowd think that Peter is merely masquerading as Spider-Man to protect Betty, his weakened state even making Ock believe that. And the police, in a really nice touch, blame all this on Jameson, who they say risked his employees' lives simply to get a good story. An even better moment is that Jonah is completely unrepentant, only not yelling at Peter because the police are present. Peter is taken home and Aunt May is told he collapsed in the street. Who removed his Spider-Man costume? Betty? Did they not see the web shooters, web fluid cartridges and spider signal? Or did they just think that Peter's devotion to cosplay was all-consuming? Again, this issue just isn't holding up as well as the previous ones, even if the drama of this scene is really well done, as is the aftermath. The police deliver the costume to Peter the next day, and May finds out what went on. This beggars belief as well. Surely Jonah would have plastered this all over the front page, and even the TV news would have gotten wind of it. Reporters would be camped outside Peter's house, the police would have wanted to question him further, and May would presumably have had another heart attack. What is good, though, is the reaction of his schoolmates. Liz Allen was already softening towards Peter, even visiting his aunt in hospital, so when she learns Peter risked his life in a big romantic gesture, suddenly she's besotted. She starts blowing Flash off and ignoring him in favour of Peter, something Peter finds intolerable. He's not about to forget all the times Liz was mean to him because her boyfriend is a jerk. Dr Octopus is also pretty annoyed that he's been roundly mocked in the media for being fooled by a teenager. The stage is set for an epic confrontation, but suddenly this issue turns into a Tarzan movie. For four pages, Spider-Man must aid the police in trapping and recapturing lions and tigers and birds that have either escaped from the zoo or been let loose by Dr. Octopus, although we never actually see Doc Ock release these creatures in the artwork, and he doesn't have any real reason for doing so. His tossing cars around in his effort to locate Spider-Man would surely do the job of terrifying the populace just as well. These four pages are a colossal waste of time, to be honest. There's no payoff to this, no reason that Ock lets these animals loose, and they disappear as quickly as they arrive, playing no part in the finale. Once we get this padding out of the way, the final confrontation is quite good. Spidey and Ock fight across New York, with Spider-Man avoiding Ock's arms shattering a water tower. The resultant water deluge does soak Jonah Jameson, though, which is a nice comedy beat. Betty now seems very concerned about Spider-Man, despite not wanting to ever see him again in the last issue. For the last few issues, Ditko has been placing Spidey in places that were unfamiliar to him, but here, high above the streets of New York, Spidey's in his element. 
He leads Ock and Merry dance up chimney stacks, down earth shafts, and in one memorable panel, he performs some incredible feats of during do, spinning around flagpoles and over billboards. Spider-Man even uses his webbing in visually interesting creative ways, spinning around Ock as he climbs a chimney to stick Ock to the brickwork, and then as a bungee cord from within the chimney stack to hurtle himself up at high speeds to punch Ock on the jaw. Ditko uses a lot of wide panels in this issue, normally the full width of the page, to highlight the frenetic fight between Ock and Spidey. All of this high-speed chasing is, of course, because Spidey knows that should he and Ock get into close-quarters combat, Ock would have the upper hands. Inevitably, this happens, and Spidey and Ock end up crashing into a sculptor's studio, which is fortunately deserted, but manages to provide us with lots of weird Ditko models to marvel at. A nice touch would have been if it had been revealed that this had been one of Alicia Masters' studios. The art is the saving grace here. As already mentioned, Ditko goes to town on the sculptures. Big giant heads, angels, demons and Roman gladiators seem to dominate the room. But when the combatants knock over some lighter fluid, Ditko really lets loose with his brilliant shading and panel layouts. The fight moves really well, progressing logically from panel to panel, with little need for dialogue or captions. Ock is trapped under a falling sculpture, and while Spider-Man tries to free him, he finds himself cut off as the conflagration grows more intense. Another of Ditko's patented panels depicting how Spider-Man's toys work is next, a glorious tour of his web shooters, web fluid belt cartridge holder, and the exact mechanisms of the palm button activation system. Using his web fluid, Spider-Man is able to escape the fire, and the wrap-up is quite quick. Ock is pulled out of the fire, suffering from smoke inhalation by the fire department, and handed over to the police. Flash and Liz arrive to see what's going on as Peter shows up, and Flash tries to take the piss. Peter has none of it, insulting both he and Liz, although Liz figures that she and Flash deserved that for all the grief they'd given Peter in the past. There's then a partially happy ending, as we learn Peter managed to get some pictures, Andy has a date with Betty, and the issue closes. All told, despite some excellent artwork, this was the first real disappointment in the Lee Ditko run. We can forgive the early stories, as the strip hasn't really settled down yet, but something this lacklustre is almost unforgivable, surrounded as it is, by a run of groundbreaking and innovative comic books. Following on from issue 11, one of the best issues yet made, this was a huge letdown. Taken on its own merits, there's nothing actually wrong with this compared to other Marvel books of the time. It careens from one event to another with little rhyme or reason, and builds to a climax before ending. That pretty much described a lot of Marvel's books, but this comic has been so much more than that, and so this can't help but feel like a letdown. Ditko's meticulous plotting isn't at all in evidence here, with certain scenes being truncated and others being too long. Better to have lost the four pages in the middle with the zoo animals, and instead focused on fleshing out Peter's illness, Dr. Octopus's scheming, and the high school hijinks before leading to the admittedly very good finale. Yes, the cover and the scene that inspired it are great. Such a shame what is surrounding it isn't these two creators at their best. A return to glory, though, for the next issue, cover-wise at least. Spider-Man sprays his webbing all over a mysterious man in green with a purple cape. He has two eyes as clasps holding the cape to the tunic, and a rather odd crash helmet that covers his entire head. Who, or what, is Mysterio? asks the cover. The cover also harkens back to the early covers with insets and panels, something that would not return, with one final exception, until the last Ditko issue. 
In one panel, Spider-Man is seen robbing a safe, and in another, considering a spell on the psychiatrist's couch. Pretty damn good on every level. The Menace of Mysterio opens with a splash that could double as a cover, but for the first time since the series began, is also a part of the story. There's a fair amount of hyperbolic copy from Stan Lee, but no dialogue, as Spider-Man flees, holding one of those magnificent bags with dollar signs on it. Maybe he got them from Electra. Behind him, two men are webbed up to prevent movement, and the safe is open. Glorious in its shading, Ditko again uses the shadows of the windows to cast a nighttime glow across the proceedings. Ditko is the Ridley Scott of comics, painting his images through shadow and shading. Another first for the series is that this issue opens in true televisual style, with a first page that could really work as the teaser to a TV episode. Spider-Man leaps from the window of the bank, climbs a wall, webs up some security guards, and then escapes using his webbing as a parachute. The police are stunned that Spider-Man is turned to crime, as whilst they didn't exactly trust him, they never felt he was as bad as Jonah Jameson made out. It's a great opening, beautifully laid out, and when looked at with hindsight, marvellous in how it never once cheats the reader. Spider-Man's body is used to block the web shooting, a subtle clue that what we are seeing may not be what we are seeing. The next day, the news spreads, and all of New York are reeling from the news. J. Jonah Jameson is delighted, Flash Thompson refuses to believe it, and Peter Parker himself is fretting. Did he commit these acts subconsciously? Is he becoming a Jekyll and Hyde type character, with a dark side that commits acts without his awareness? This is another great page, with some good character work. Of course Jonah is happy, this is his best day ever. Betty is conflicted, after all, Spider-Man did save her life, and Flash is in denial. Even Peter's fretting seems real and believable. Peter has always been a high-strung character, even if he's calmed down of late, so it's perfectly acceptable that he would be concerned by this turn of events. Some minor disconnects between the art and the writing and that Peter is at school when he starts to panic and then he's at home washing dishes without May. Given that he's more relaxed at home, the art obviously takes place over a period of time. Stan, however, has the caption that states this is minutes later in the kitchen. Unless the kitchen is in the school, I do sometimes wonder if Stan actually looked at what he was writing. He follows this up with a truly awful line of expository dialogue from Aunt May. Are you worried, Peter, that our savings account is almost empty and it's getting harder to pay the mortgage each month? Talk about a guilt trip. The following day, Peter awakens to learn that Spider-Man has struck again. Peter, in a panic, heads to the psychiatrist, but within minutes decides against that course of action, lest he reveal something that could lead the man to deduce who he is. The psychiatrist is annoyed, as having spiders as a patient could have been his real ticket to wealth. Peter is getting desperate. He heads to the bugle to hit Joan up for an advance, and in the process snaps at Betty. He decides to hit the streets of Spider-Man to drum up some cash, but is turned upon by the populace. This was the first time we'd seen most of New York actively turn against Spider-Man, something that would become a staple as the series progressed. In the Daily Bugle, a new figure appears, offering to inform Spider-Man what is going on. This figure, calling himself Mysterio, promises Jonah the exclusive, if Jonah prints a note sending Spider-Man to the top of the Brooklyn Bridge. Spider-Man will have nightmares about the Brooklyn Bridge forevermore, as this being the first place he ever fought Mysterio be a source of great consternation to him. Lee makes no effort to hide that he thinks Mysterio's design is goofy, having all his characters comment on it, and this is but one of many times Lee will poke fun at a Ditko design that, in most other respects, is no sillier than a lot of comics characters, and is actually quite visually striking. 
In the case of Mysterio, we can actually argue a case that it's deliberately over the top, given what we learn about the character as the story unfolds. Spider-Man heads to the meeting place, and we are treated to the first battle. Over on Fantasticast, we've discussed many times that Stanley never seemed to have a clear understanding of how magnets work. Here, apparently Mysterio can cling to walls because his boots are magnetised. I didn't know magnets worked on bricks. Mysterio manages to thwart every single one of Spider-Man's tricks, ultimately leading to Spider-Man being beaten when Mysterio manages to cloud his spider-sense. Spidey exercises the better part of valour and flees, diving into the East River, and avoids the police by using his web to create a helmet with an ur pocket in it. This was another great fight scene, not just because of Ditko's visuals, which are predictably good. The best thing about this was that Peter steadfastly refused to believe what he's seeing, with Mysterio vanishing and floating before his eyes. Peter was instead convinced there had to be a scientific explanation for it all. One can argue how Spider-Man has a problem believing all this when he's seen people turn to sand and hurl electricity out of their fingertips, but it's always a nice character beat that Peter believes in hard, raw data and scientific principle over blind acceptance. Mysterio is the talk of the town, with a motorcade celebration through the streets of New York and a promise to give a full expose to the Bugle, for a healthy fee, of course. Flash still doesn't buy any of it, and Peter is more upbeat than he should be. He's introduced to Mysterio by Jonah, and he uses the opportunity to plant a spider tracer in the folds of Mysterio's cloak. Some more lovely touches here. Betty starts to notice that Peter is always running off, and that perhaps he has another girl, setting up the upcoming adversarial relationship with Liz Allen. Ditko also does something different with the half-face mask image that he uses a lot. Instead of totally covering the right side of Peter's face with the Spider-Man mask, he only covers the top half of Peter's face, leaving Peter's hair, eye and mouth exposed. It's an absolutely stunning visual, and one wonders why he didn't use it more often. Spider-Man tracks Mysterio to his own lure, a television studio, and Spider-Man fakes a defeat to get Mysterio to gloat about how he pulled all this off. Mysterio is a special effects technician, his real name is never given, who hits upon the idea of duplicating Spider-Man's abilities through SFX technology and start robbing banks. He then hits on the further idea of using this tech to make an identity for himself, catch Spider-Man, and then claim all the credit, and retire the Mysterio persona, a rich man and a hero. As supervillain plans go, this actually isn't all that bad. Spider-Man, of course, catches all this on tape, hysterically Mysterio calling it a miniature tape recorder, despite it being the size of a brick. And then, amidst the shooting of a science fiction movie, Spidey starts handling Mysterio the beatdown he so desperately deserves. Ignoring that Stan never actually explains how Mysterio pulled the disappearing axe, most of his other tricks are explained quite nearly in a Ditko montage, where we see Mysterio developing all his tech, and there are some cool cross-sections showing how they work. The final confrontation across the film studio gives Ditko another chance to go wild with the locations, and Spider-Man is at his confident and smart-assed best. Arguably, this is the first time Spider-Man has been overly confident in a fight, as he's got this all worked out at this point, and he's just toying with Mysterio. There's a lot of humour in these scenes as well, which stops them from getting repetitive, not least when J. Jonah Jameson learns about Mysterio, and Spider-Man later drops by to tease Jonah and web him to a ceiling. The wrap-up is again quite quick, and there are problems with this story, not least that we never learn Mysterio's real name, and that his abilities aren't quite explained to the reader's total satisfaction, but this is a breezy and entertaining romp. Mysterio is another villain who's really great, but doesn't really benefit from multiple appearances, although an updated version using today's technology could be interesting. 
Most of this issue, though, is reworkings of things we've seen before, or a trial run for future, better stories. The Menace of Mysterio is a good, solid issue, but it's also the first in a run of issues that will be done in one, before Lee Ditko really start to spread their wings and kick the series off into deeper narratives and continuing stories. Hey everyone, Michael Bailey here with a trailer for an exciting series of episodes of Views from the Long Box. To help me with this trailer, I have brought along none other than Darth Vader. What is thy bidding, my master? I, uh, I had to pay extra for that one. Now, normally on Views, I talk about comics, either alone or with a friend. However, with The Force Awakens hitting theaters soon, I have been all excited for Star Wars. And with the sudden massive amount of free time I have found myself with, I decided to devote all of the December episodes of Views to Star Wars in a series I am calling Views from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. Oh, that was, was kind of rude. I mean, I, I would think a Dark Lord of the Sith would be happy that I'm devoting a month of shows to Star Wars. Don't make me destroy you. Look, Vader, we had a deal. I was going to tell everybody about how I'm going to talk about my favorite Star Wars movies, my favorite characters and comics and toys, in addition to talking about The Force Awakens. You were supposed to back me up on this. I am altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. Well... Fine, then. Can I at least talk about how I'm bringing some of the best and brightest in podcasting along with me on this endeavor? And that the show is going to be weekly through the month of December? The Emperor does not share your optimistic appraisal of the situation. The Emperor will be listening? Yeah. Then I will have to double my efforts. Apology accepted. I did an apo- You know what? Never mind. What everybody needs to know is that views from a galaxy far, far away... Starts December 1st, here at Views from Longbox. You can find the show on iTunes or by going to www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. We would be honored if you would join us. Finally, you stuck to the script. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Views from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. Starting December 1st, only at Views from the Longbox. from a trailer uh, we'll just have a look in the email bag and there's only one email this time which of course is from Chris Franklin which is titled Fembots over Northern England that would have been a great episode Fembots in Manchester <laughs> that would have been awesome hey hey la what you doing what you up to hey hey mad for it hey hey what, hey your face just fell off oh blimey that's great oh hey well, maybe not. Uh, Chris says, hey, Andy, fun episode on the Fembots. Six million dollar man and the Bionic Woman are parts of my childhood. I've never fully re-explored, which is odd. I've got random episodes here and there on the various cable networks in my adult years, but I've never done a marathon reviewing, so my actual memories are vague. I do know they were must-see TV when I was a wee lad. Like you, I had the Kenner Steve Austin figure and one other piece, the Mission to Mars astronaut outfit. I was captivated by that red-domed visor. Being a toy guy, I've coveted the Steve figure from afar for several years, and hopefully someday he'll come home again. Uh, well, uh, see, the thing with the Six Million Dollar Man and the Violet Woman, and to a lesser extent the Incredible Hulk, is you don't want to go back and marathon them. 
they are very much shows like Space 1999 as well, which I've just been I got for Christmas on Blu-ray, and I've just got to the last episode as I record this, which is November. The they're not modern day television. You know, if you buy the DVD box set or whatever, if it's available on Blu-ray, like Space 1999 is, the best thing you can really do is just watch an episode every now and again when you're in the mood for it, because they are repetitive and they can be a bit slow by today's standards. But if you just watch one every, I don't know, every week or so, like they were designed to be seen, I suppose, they can still entertain you. If you try and marathon it like Breaking Bad, the flaws in the show become readily apparent and it doesn't really hold up. So if you do, um, uh, well, why don't you? Here's here's an ad. Just pick up the season one DVD set and watch it slowly over the course of six months and see what you think. It's a pity there's not a best of Six Million Dollar Man set because that would be be good. The best thing about the Six Million and the Bionic Woman set is if you don't want to buy both, they do have the crossover episodes on each set. So if you only want to buy the Six Million Dollar Man, all of the Bionic Woman crossover episodes are on those. So you don't only get Kill Oscar Part 2, which would have been quite unfortunate, I suppose. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Chris continues, or concludes, I should say, with now get back to Lee Ditko and Trek music. Chris, you're not going to let that Trek music one go, are you? <laughs> Alright, maybe at, at some point in the future I'll do that. Because I can just rattle off ten great pieces of instrument, instrumental music from Star Trek off the top of my head. I could probably do five from a mock time. Throw in the Doomsday Machine. Throw in the Mirror Mirror music. Dun, 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 Which I know isn't the Mirror Mirror music, because it first appeared in Corbomite Maneuver, which was the first episode they filmed after the pilot. But it's always the Mirror Mirror music to me, because that's the episode I most associate it with. Anyway, yeah, we'll probably get back to that. The Pally stores are wide open. We can do whatever we want. I want to do a Supernatural episode at some point. I want to bring the missus in and do Supernatural and explain why the standalone episodes are so much better than the mythology episodes. I wonder why that would be, in many ways. Anyway, that's it. Like I said, that's the only email that we have got from people. So, uh, until next time, which will probably be Lead It Co. Part 3, but you never know which way the wind will take us, do you? Uh, I'll see you then. Thank you for joining us. Oh, before I go, I need to do the usual spiel, don't I? Yeah. If you want to go through the Two Tree Freaks website, there's an Amazon link. Click on the Amazon link, take you to Amazon, buy your stuff. We get a kickback. Everyone's happy. Don't cost you a thing. And if you want to email the show, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the place to do so. Okay. I'll see you next week. No, I won't. It's not weekly. Uh, I'll see you again next time. Thank you for joining me. Bye-bye.